Section 20 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 3, The Campaigns of Crecy and Neville's Cross, and the Siege of Calais, Part 4. It will be remembered that at the time Edward sailed from England and turned his course to Laug instead of Bordeaux, the formidable French army of the south, having overrun the open country, sat down to beleaguer the great fortress of Aiguillon, which stood near the confluence of the Lut, readers note, Lore, and the Garonne. This was the most famous siege and defense of the war. From April till the end of August, a series of assaults were at intervals directed against the fortress with the whole force of the French army. On one occasion, for six successive days, each of the four detachments of the army taking its turn for three hours at a time. Catapults for battering down the walls and bridges over the rivers to the tongue of land on which Aiguillon stands were again and again erected by the besiegers and demolished by the besieged, and Sir Walter Manny and his brave garrison had shown no sign of exhaustion. When news reached the Duke of Normandy, that King Edward's invading army was within sight of the ramparts of Paris. Then at length the siege was raised, and the Duke marched northward to reinforce his father, while the Earl of Derby, now of Lancaster, refusing to treat with the French, took possession of many important towns, among others of the rich and populous city of Poitiers. He then embarked for England, and recrossing the channel, joined King Edward before Calais, Thither also repaired the gallant defender of Aiguillon, Sir Walter Manny, but he, relying on a safe conduct from the Duke of Normandy, rode with twenty companions through the heart of France. He was taken prisoner notwithstanding, and carried before the king who basely threatened him with death. But the threat was not executed, for the duke, true to his character, declared that he would never again bear arms against the English if his father incurred the deep disgrace of such treachery. After the defeat of Crecy, Philip seems to have thought that the campaign was at an end, for he straightway disbanded his own army and that which he had summoned from the south. He made great efforts at this time to detach the Flemings from the English alliance, and so far succeeded that the burgomasters of the great towns invited the young count, whose father had fallen at Crecy, to come and rule over them, being then in his fifteenth year. But Edward sent envoys who pointed out to the Flemings the paramount importance of keeping on good terms with the people which commanded the supply of the produce on which their industry depended, and persuaded them to acquiesce in a proposal for a marriage between the Count of Flanders and an English princess. Upon the Count's indignant refusal to be united to the daughter of the man who had killed his father, for his father fell at Crecy, his subjects seized him and kept him under strict surveillance, till at last he gave them a promise that he would do as they required. King Edward and Queen Philippa were delighted at the prospect of this union, and went with great pomp to meet their future son-in-law at Berg, where a day was appointed for the marriage. But the Count was only watching for his opportunity to escape, and finding it one day when out hawking, he set spurs to his horse and outstripped pursuit, got safe within the French border, 
and threw himself into the arms of Philip. Upon this, the Flemings flung off all friendly relations with the French king, raised an army estimated at 100,000 men, and ravaged the country up to the walls of Saint-Omer. Of the three possible means of approaching Calais, that on the east by Gravelines was effectually barred by the Flemings against a relieving French army. A second approach led through a marshy tract on the northeast, impassable except by a long and narrow causeway commanded by the bridge of Noulet, which was defended and defensible against the host by a small body of English under the Earl of Lancaster. The third means of access was by the dunes extending along the sea to the southwest. This passage was fortified by deep ditches and a tower occupied by archers, and was commanded by the shot from the ships which were drawn up in shore, within range of the only possible line of march. Meanwhile, a fleet of cruisers swept the channel and barred the admission of supplies to the citizens, who began to suffer from famine. The siege had been turned into a mere blockade, for though the ordinary means of attack by throwing missiles into the city were not abandoned, they seemed to have been employed more with a view of increasing the distress of the besieged than of destroying the defenses of the town. Among others, small cannon were used, which threw metal bullets, and arrows winged with slips of thin brass plate and fitted with leather collars to the bore of the gun. These cannon can hardly have been very formidable, for from three to four ounces was the average daily allowance of powder for each gun, and the whole stock of bullets for the siege was two hundred and four. The properties of gunpowder had been known to Michael Schwarz in Germany and to Roger Bacon in England half a century before this date, but it appears to have been first used for cannon at the beginning of the fourteenth century in the Venetian Wars. One historian only, Villani, see preface, page 5, and he in Italian, wishing to account for the defeat of the Genoese, lays any stress upon the fact of the employment of cannon at Crecy. Doubtless it was little thought at the time that these clumsy curiosities were the precursors of an artillery which was destined to revolutionize warfare and to abolish the whole external system of chivalry by bringing down the iron-clad knight to a level with the unarmored plebeian soldier. At the commencement of the siege, the governor, John de Vienne, guessing Edward's intentions, had turned out of the gates every one whom he judged useless for the defense. These, to the number of 1,700, drew near to the English camp, uncertain what fate awaited them. But the king received them within the lines, gave them a plentiful meal, and passed them safely into the country with a present of two pieces of silver each. Five hundred more of the useless mouths were expelled at a later period of the siege, but chivalry had its fits of obduracy as well as tender-heartedness, and this time the English lines were closed against them, and the whole multitude of men, women, and children were left to perish miserably of cold and hunger under the eyes of besiegers and besieged. The French ships made desperate exertions to throw provisions into the town, and at first with some success, but they were soon obliged to abandon the attempt. When the siege had lasted about ten months, two small vessels were seen escaping out of the harbor. One of them was caught, 
but before surrendering the captain was seen to throw something into the sea. It was found the next day on the sand at low water, an axe with a letter tied to it from John de Vienne to the French king, stating that the garrison was in dreadful straits, that they had already eaten the horses, dogs, and cats, and that they could find nothing more to eat unless they ate each other. This letter was brought to Edward, who, when he read it, sent it on to its destination, and prayed King Philip that if he valued his fair fame, he would send relief to his good people at Calais. But at the time of receiving this melancholy dispatch, Philip was already on his way at the head of an army, stated with evident exaggeration at 200,000 men, to the relief of the place. They marched with all their banners flying and the oriflamme waving at their head, and took up a position at Huisson on the sea. From thence they advanced by the way of the dunes and appeared on the Sandgat hills, but though they got possession of the watchtower, they were unable to approach within a mile of the English army, and now two cardinals who had accompanied the French army, having endeavoured and failed in their endeavours to bring about a peace, the French king took a step which, odd as it may seem to us, at that time probably created little surprise, as it was in strict accordance with the usages of chivalry. On July 31, 1347, he sent a knight named Eustache de Ribaumont and two envoys, who were admitted by the bridge of Neulay, to audience of King Edward, and delivered themselves thus. Sire, the king of France sends us before you, and would have you know that he is here, and posted on the Sandgat Hill to fight you. But he cannot see or find any way of getting at you, though he has a great desire to raise the siege of his good city of Calais. He would be very glad if your council and his could meet and determine upon a place to fight, and this we are charged to request of you. The above are the words of the challenge as given by Foissart, according to whom the English king replied that he had been there near a twelve-month, was now on the point of taking Calais, and had not the smallest intention of complying with King Philip's request. But a letter of Edward's own is extant in which he says that he accepted the challenge and appointed the day. However this may be, on the 2nd of August, to the amazement of all, the great French army suddenly broke up, and were seen marching away southward, leaving their camp in flames and Calais to its fate. The following day the governor made a signal that he wished to treat, and when Sir Walter Manny drew near the wall to confer with him, offered to give up the city on condition that all within were permitted to depart unharmed. Sir Walter's orders were to demand a surrender at discretion, and this Sir John refused, saying that rather than accept such terms they would sell their lives as dearly as they could. Edward, who bore an ancient grudge against the inhabitants for their piracies, and was now exasperated by their obstinate resistance, turned a deaf ear at first to Sir Walter's intercessions, but at length consented that he would take the rest of the citizens to mercy, on condition that six of the chief burgesses should be given up to his vengeance, and bareheaded and barefooted, with halters round their necks, bring to him the keys of Calais. On them, said Edward savagely, I will do my will. When these hard conditions were announced, a mournful silence fell upon the famishing multitude, 
summoned by the ringing of the town bell to hear their fate in the marketplace. To Lustache Saint-Pierre, the richest burgess in the city, stood forth and said, My friends, it would be a great pity and mischief to let such a people as this here die by famine, or any other way, if a means can be found to save them, and it would be great alms and great grace in the sight of our Lord for any one who could save them from such harm. I have myself so great hope of finding grace and pardon in the sight of our Lord, if I die to save this people, that I will be the first and will yield myself willingly, in nothing but my shirt with my head bare and the halter round my neck, to the mercy of the King of England. Upon this we are told the women threw themselves at his feet, weeping tenderly. Then another and another of the Burgesses stood forth, five more, saying they were ready to go to death with him. And so ere long the number was made up, and the dismal procession took its way to the English camp. De Vienne, who could not go afoot for his wounds, rode alongside of them, and the people followed, weeping bitterly to the gate, which opened to deliver the six Burgesses to Sir Walter Manny, and then closed again behind them. Ushered into the presence of the king, who sat under a crimson canopy of state, with his queen at his side, and his court and staff standing round, they knelt down before him, and handing him the keys of the city, implored him to spare their lives. Certes, says Jean Lebel, there was then in that place neither lord nor knight that wept not for pity. But Edward, who hated the men of Calais for the damage they had done him on the sea in times past, grinding his teeth with rage and silencing the expostulations of Sir Walter and the rest, ordered up the executioner. Then Queen Philippa, rising from the king's side, fell upon her knees before the relentless conqueror, and entreated him with tears to spare the burghers for her sake and for the love of our lady's son. He appeared for a long time inexorable, but at last he yielded to her prayers and desired them to be delivered up to the pleasure of the queen, who took them to her pavilion, clothed and fed them, and set them free with a gift of money for their immediate necessities. There seems reason to believe that Edward, who, though easily roused to fury, was certainly not of a cruel or vindictive nature, never intended to stain his hands with the blood of these gallant citizens, and that the whole scene in the camp of vengeance giving way to intercession had been previously arranged. But even if this was so, it in no way detracts from the heroism of Saint-Pierre and his companions, who had completed their sacrifice and tasted all the bitterness of death the courtly contemporary chronicler, whose sympathies seldom extend beyond the charmed circle of kings and knights and nobles, describes the above scenes in detail with far more of pity than of admiration or enthusiasm. But to us, who look back into the distance and see things in their real proportions and their true historical light, this golden deed of the self-surrender of six Calais tradesmen far outshines in glory all the knightly exploits of the time. End of section 20